Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast from the Australian Men's Shed Association, shoulder to shoulder, virtually. On this episode of The Shed Wireless, hear the inside story of the COVID crisis response from the man at the centre of the action, the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, will be our guest. We continue our series on the history of shedding. We're going to talk about social distancing from the refrigerator with Stuart, and Rip Woodchip will be along to nail it as usual. Hello, I'm your host, Aaron Carney, the Executive Officer of the Australian Men's Shed Association. David Helmers is with us as always. Hello, sir. Hi, Aaron. How's your week been, mate? My week has been good if busy. I, I do feel a sense of growing optimism that people just feel slightly less uh, squashed down and depressed than they did a few weeks ago. Let's hope it's not a false dawn for everybody. I know you've had a really busy week because we are in very uncharted territory just at the moment in terms of the admin and logistics and processes with the men's sheds, aren't we? That's right. Look, we've had a lot of calls there coming in, a lot of emails regarding some of the uh, relaxations of um, the social distancing measures. And we understand a lot of the sheds are very keen to go back. And yeah, we discussed this last week about mm. how AMSA had put the guide out there. But I just want to, yeah, while we're talking on this subject, strengthen the, the, the point when the men are talking to the COVID lines, uh, the hotline set up, they need to be very upfront and honest to them of what the shed is and what they do, not try and, you know, elude with their questions to get an answer they want, because that they can go back at the shed. There mm-hmm. is some significant fines at play, as well as COVID still is out there in the community. We need to protect, you know, all our members. From a you know, more, more personal perspective, and, you know, the laws are being adjusted around and local councils and building trustees may have some difference of opinions on whether the shed can go back or not as well and they they're essentially the landlord but you know the sheds have to look at it this way you know they've all been closed for a good eight weeks or so now another seven or ten twelve days whatever it may be is just a bit of an extension on that i'd rather them be safe than sorry aaron at the end of the day mate I think that's the real take-home out of this because we have seen gatherings of vulnerable people and a lot of the sheds do Uh constitute gatherings of vulnerable people that have really gone south because they've been mishandled and we just don't want that to happen for our shedding community. So uh, as David says, please err on the side of caution team. And again, AMSA is there to support, not to give directives. This is the important distinction as well, isn't it? It's not like... It's not like Vatican City is going to be handing down the word of God on this. It's uh, very much all of the local sheds being able to drive their own reality. That's right. There's lots of grey areas out there as well. So, yeah, we're getting lots of emails from people saying, well, this state says this or this person told me that. Look, you've got to be sensible about it. Make, make a very concise decision. Anything doubt, just delay the process another week. Yeah. It's been eight weeks now, another week on top of that won't be the end of the world for them. We're getting some fantastic feedback about how well the virtual connection has gone. It doesn't mean it's a substitute for the shed. It absolutely does not. But people have really embraced this idea of alternative ways to try and get shoulder to shoulder, if we can put it that way. So as you say, another week of that won't do anybody any harm. No, not at, not at all. 
We were rather excited last episode because we have for the very first time our own email for The Shed Wireless so that you can talk directly to the show and it is theshedwireless at menshed.net, theshedwireless at menshed.net and I was delighted that our very first piece of correspondence came from the other side of the world. Let me share it with you word for word. It's from Clondalkin Men's Shed and it says, thanks lads, really enjoyed your podcast today. Nice to hear Barry, David, Ted and Rip, all of their stories. And I'd like to know more of the new connect phase that Rip Woodchip talked about to keep us all connected. Thanks again, Tommy from CMS Dublin in Ireland. Hello, Tommy. Thank you very much for getting in contact with us at the Shed Wireless at menshed.net and talking about the realities how they differ across Australia they certainly differ across the world with the shed and the reopening process with COVID I imagine that Ireland will be one of those challenging places to get back and operating in full anytime soon have you had much correspondence over there David? Yeah look I speak with Barry Sheridan the executive officer of the Irish Men's Shed Association. Me and Barry have always chatted at least once a fortnight mm. uh, for the last few years and yeah, we've got a very strong working relationship. In the last two months we've been chatting you know, two, three times a week sometimes and look, the sheds are in a very similar position to us over there. COVID has hit Ireland yeah, very hard considering the small population of Ireland. They're not envisioning the sheds going back as soon as what we are over here, by no means, they're playing at a much safer line. You know, it's quite tragic, some of the numbers coming out of Ireland. Mm. I've been over there you know, four or five times, I think, now. Supposed to go back later this year, but that's definitely off the cards now uh, for the international conference that was going to be held. Yeah. And Galway's now being postponed. But, look, the sheds in Ireland, I've always said the sheds all around the world are pretty much, yeah, they're all diverse, but they're all the same. You know, there's, I know there's a bit of a contradiction, but yeah, the thing that makes all the sheds different is the men within the shed. Mm. And there's some wonderful characters like Tommy out there in um, over in Ireland that you know I hear from every now and then. You know, I look forward to one day being able to get back to the Emerald Isle. Indeed, and we're really chuffed that you reached out to us and the invitation is extended to everyone. If you would like to have a shout out, just let us know that you're listening, uh, say hi to your mates in the shedding movement, however you want to approach it. It's as simple as sending us an email. It is the Shed Wireless, the Shed Wireless at mensshed.net. And the only tricky bit about it is Men's Shed has two S's in the middle, obviously mensshed.net. We would love to hear from you. David, our feature guest for this episode was not originally intended to be our feature guest for this episode. Unsurprisingly, as arguably in the top five busiest and most important people in Australia right now, the health minister Mm -hmm. took a heck of a lot of teeing up with uh, Emma and the team behind the scenes, uh, making sure that we did what was possible to have him on the show for what we thought was going to be Men's Health Week, which is coming up and we're going to have a special episode for that in a few weeks' time. But Once we did our pre-record, obviously his time was precious, it became apparent to us that really this conversation is so timely, it can't wait for a few weeks. No, and look, the the Greg Hunt, the Minister for Health, we we honoured that he took the time out, as you rightfully say, he would be one of the busiest blokes in the country 
without a doubt at the moment. And he's also our funding minister for AMSA and Men's Sheds, and he's very passionate about Men's Sheds. So, you know, I suppose it was no surprise, but it was a surprise really you know, that he accepted our offer. I thought when we put it through by all the feedback, he's the busiest bloke in the in the country. Well, you'll hear this come out in the interview. Like the day he's saying he's often pulling 18-hour days. He got a 1,000 text messages in one day at the height of this thing. Uh, it would be unbelievable. Mm. So for him to take this time out and speak to us here today um, really shows how passionate he is about men's sheds and the men's shed movement. Um, so, we, yeah, we're very honoured to have him. So the original plan was this was going to be an interview that you heard in Men's Health Week as part of a series of special interviews that we have planned, but there's just so much timely information in it that we didn't want to delay it that long, and so we have brought it forward. You will hear some references to Men's Health Week that are obviously not happening right now, but the information that you're about to hear is very timely and relevant, and so it will be on point. We will go to the Health Minister Greg Hunt next here on The Shed Wireless. You're listening to The Shed Wireless. When the history books record the way the COVID-19 crisis upended life as we know it in Australia and how we as a nation reacted, our next guest is going to have more than a few pages devoted to his role in it all. The Federal Minister for Health, Greg Hunt, has been at the forefront of the Australian response. That responsibility and the fight to save Australian lives, I dare say, have taken a considerable toll on his own health. So we are especially honoured that he has found time to speak to you, the men who fill the 1,100 sheds across Australia, the people who love them, and many more around the world as part of this special Men's Health Week edition of the Australian Men's Shed Association, Shed Wireless. Welcome, Minister. G'day, Aaron, and uh, hello to everybody who's uh, listening and everybody associated with the Men's Shed movement. And I know it's been a a difficult time. The isolation and the distancing are so, you know, contrary to who we are, (laughs) but they've been so fundamental to Australia getting to where we are. I just want to ask, how's your health going right now? No, health is not too bad. I was lucky that uh, in December I'd been really on a fitness kick Mm. and I always try to run or walk every day. Uh, I've obviously done less of it during this period simply because it's been, you know, sometimes 18, 19 hours a day of of consistent work. Mm. But what I'll often do, as I did this morning, is I walked for an hour and did all my phone calls. And so, you know, active walking, phone calls, and then I'm still trying to get in, uh, you know, maybe three uh, to four runs a week. Uh, They're really, you know, they're about half an hour each, and sometimes if I can with my kids, they're 15-minute ones. So I've kept that up. I've lost a little bit of pace, but my daughter did a time trial with me, and I was running sort of four-minute 40Ks, in January, then I was at a four-minute 53K time trial with my daughter. She beat me. She's 15. She's very happy. I'm not. Uh, but it's, so not too much fitness has been lost. A lot of sleep has been lost, but fitness is fine. And other people have real challenges. People have been losing their jobs. People have, uh, you know, nearly 7,000 Australians have contracted coronavirus, uh, almost 100 have lost their lives, you know, beautiful Australians, mostly elderly, and so 
all of that puts my challenge into the perspective that I've got a strong, supportive family. Uh, I've got work which is deeply meaningful. And so the pressures, they don't compare with what people who have lost their jobs, are struggling with their businesses uh, or have had their health at risk or the health of a family member. I respect that perspective and that humility. One thing that this crisis has done is made everybody look inward as to how they manage their own health. And that is equally true whether you're uh, the health minister or in a shed in rural WA. Can I just ask again, in a at the interface between personal and professional, how do you make sure that you're the best version of yourself? You've alluded to daily exercise. Does somebody make sure you eat the right thing or are you gobbing down two-minute noodles at 11 o'clock at night? How does it work? Uh, well, look, if I'm at home, um, my my wife and my genuine live-in Italian nonna, my genuine, you know, our, our mother-in-law lives with us, uh, they are both fantastic clean cooks and um, they, you know, try to keep the family eating good, healthy food. And so, you know, my great joy in life is to have family dinner around the table. I don't always get there, but when I do, it's a, it's a healthy meal and I'm there. Then when I'm in the office, uh, I try to really have soup and fruit, maybe a little too much chocolate, but soup and fruit mm. is, the, is the basis. I just don't like to work with a heavy stomach, and so that works quite well for me. And then if I'm doing phone calls, often I'll either put the headphones on or carry the mobile phone and walk and talk, walk and talk, and you'd be amazed at how much, you know, light exercise you can do, but that constant movement is immensely important to me. So they're the, they're the things, and, uh, you know, I'm lucky that uh, alcohol just really isn't a part of my life. I'll have an occasional glass of wine at home, uh, but never... Uh, in a professional setting and never in Canberra. I just uh, made those decisions, you know, some decades ago and uh, they've probably been wise. Just keeps everything very simple. Yeah, very much so and allows you to compartmentalise. Perhaps we've walked to the edge then of mental health. Can I talk about your mental health and this current crisis? When you went into politics, I imagine that you did it with a dream of playing some role in your country's future, but you couldn't have imagined this life and death scenario that has been thrust upon you in the last couple of months. How do you come to terms with that? Well, you're right. I never contemplated this situation. When I came into health uh, on day one, we actually went to the National Incident Centre and talked about uh, the structures that are in place and the processes uh, if there were to be a pandemic an anthrax attack um, a natural disaster the types of things that we would do as a country and then you learn more and so i was fortunately well prepared uh, so being deeply engaged in the portfolio for now well over three years i uh, had the fortune of knowing where the pieces were. Mm. But what we really did, and this is where the work with the Prime Minister and Brendan Murphy, who's the Chief Medical Officer, and uh, Paul Kelly, who's the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, was so important. We worked as a team and then worked through the National Security Committee of Cabinet where there was a really rapid but formal decision-making uh, process. So everything was tested and 
uh, you know, we looked at what was the situation, what was desirable and what was possible and then what the actions were. And to have that process, which, you know, which Scott would preside over, uh, but he's done that for health, he's done that for economics, he's done that for national security and he's done that for the Federation. And that's been deeply reassuring. Probably during March was the most pressure when I was getting uh, at some stage up to a 1,000 texts or, or phone uh, or email messages a day. Wow. And so you're constantly working whilst at the same time we were putting in place telehealth, the containment measures and the private hospitals uh, guaranteed. So th- that was the most pressure. But, you know, for me, I because I've got the exercise and if I can see the family, that matters. Of course, you get um, you know a little uh, tense at times, but if you know if I need the if I can get the exercise, I'm fine. For for other people, um, this has been deeply stressful, and so Beyond Blue is there. You know, one three hundred double two four six three six one three hundred double two four six three six Men's Line. You're very attuned with the needs of people. Uh, you know who might be. Over 50, uh, they might have retired, they might have lost their job. 1300 789 978. 1300 789 978. And they're just two of the things which say this can happen to anybody. So if you are feeling stressed, no guilt, no blame, realize that it's normal, it's understandable, and it's completely appropriate and desirable to seek help. Really valuable for you to share that. And indeed, uh, this very mechanism, the Shed Wireless, is all about making sure that there is a sense of camaraderie and connection and some pathways and some information. You've led us to Men's Health Week, which is what we are celebrating this week. What unique role do you see the Sheds playing in this peculiar corner of Australian health? And that is uh, older men. And I think it's immensely important. Uh, one of the sort of great joys of my job is that I have policy responsibility for the men's shed movement. And so by being able to support them, and I see it with the, uh, the local sheds in my own area, uh, whether it's, you know, the Southern Peninsula shed, whether it's uh, the Western Port shed in Hastings, Mount Martha, uh, whether it's uh, at Dramana you know, and so many others, Pearsdale, you see these uh, sheds that bring people together. Uh, people have a fantastic laugh, mostly at my expense. <laughs> There's nothing more Australian, Minister, than <laughs> laughing at a politician. <laughs> but then they'll do things like make rocking horses for uh, for disadvantaged kids. Uh, they'll be making toys. They'll be getting the pride of the craft, uh, the generosity of the gift and then the strength of the camaraderie and it's a great Australian initiative that's gone around the world but it's helped a lot of people and um, many people have told me you know but for the shed I'd be in a very dark place and I think that's a really important thing the shed is a point of light when otherwise people might be in a dark place. Would you agree that given the economic outcomes of the next couple of years imposed by the COVID crisis that the sheds are going to have a critical role to play in the next few years? Absolutely. And I say that because we know historically that wherever 
there have been economic downturns. There have been there's strong evidence that there have been increases in mental health challenges, and that's especially associated uh, with people who uh, may not be able to get back into the workforce. And that can happen with older men and that sense of purpose, that sense of pride, uh, of independence, and uh, it can be lost and so people might question their self-worth. There's no blame here. And it's really important to understand if you're that person and you're not in a position of responsibility now or you're not working and circumstances have conspired, uh, then there's help to support you. Yes, Beyond Blue and... Uh, men's health line but much more importantly the fellowship of people around you who get that uh, there are unforeseeable and uncontrollable events in life and that we back each other that's being Australian but it's also being human above all all else that we back each other and sheds clearly play a critical role they're welcoming non-judgmental places and I think that's that's what's made them so successful. And so at AMSA HQ, uh, as I check in with them each day, they've been bombarded with inquiries, people begging for a pathway back to the shed. What hope can you offer? Uh, actually, quite a lot. We still want people to uh, maintain their social uh, distancing, which means, you know, the one and a half metres, the normal, you know, friendly hug or handshake, which is so much a part of who we are they're not really with us uh, I think for the course of this year we're going to have to practice those distancing uh, things but to get people back into the sheds I'm hopeful that will come in either stage one or stage two uh, but uh, but it's coming and it's coming soon are you as you make that analysis differentiating between rural areas where for example there have been very low coronavirus numbers as opposed to the areas that are more intensely populated are you making those distinctions uh, no we're not um, at the moment because uh, states are viewing themselves as an entity and they'd like to be able to move everybody together whether it's rural or urban but uh, there will be the capacity for states to choose to make a distinction between uh, rural areas and others. But I think as a general rule, they're looking to move as a single entity. And I'm hearing, reading between the lines on what you're saying, that uh, when the time comes and a directive comes, as we have done so far as a nation and therefore been so successful in combating coronavirus, it's going to be really important to take directives from AMSA or whoever the other authorities are and uh, follow those to the letter of the law to give us the best chance of staying open? Yeah. So to give you an example, there are likely two uh, requirements that would come with the first round. One is that there might be limited numbers, let's say 10 people at any one time um, as a national rule on gatherings and uh, that you maintain that one and a half metre distancing within that environment. And so, but they're quite achievable. And then it might move to a figure such as 20 in um, you know, uh, six weeks' time or, if we're lucky, a little bit earlier. And they, they're the sort of things that people can manage. So it's a case of we start carefully One of the things we're trying to do is to monitor the impacts of the changes and to be able to manage them. 
We know that there might be spikes or outbreaks, as we've seen in northwest Tasmania or around the uh, the Cedar Meats uh, example in Victoria. Mm. And to be able to move really quickly to test, to, to contact trace, to isolate, these are the things that uh, are incredibly important. And so I think that they, uh, the principles which we're applying, whether it's community sport, whether it's retail, uh, whether it's cafes, whether it's uh, sheds, uh, other forms of community activities, a, sort of a, a, a set of behaviours, the number of people and the distancing, then an expanded number and the distancing, and then maybe we might move um, in the third stage to a, a, you know, a, a more general limit on numbers. Mass gatherings in terms of you know, the MCG or large numbers of people and international travel, they're a lot further down the, down the pathway. Outside of Australia's borders, you know, we've seen that the world is almost 4 million cases officially. We think it's probably well over... 10 million cases, I've said this before, um, given those that have not been diagnosed yet. So, you know, outside of our borders, uh, the world is a very different place. And so the only international border we can see uh, an immediate move on or immediate uh, a, uh, for which we have a foreseeable move uh, is uh, New Zealand. That will probably come at about the same time we move on some of the interstate restrictions in Australia. Those two things would uh, potentially come together. Minister, I know you have many commitments. We'll wrap it. But I just wanted to give you the floor for a moment. You have the ears of the men across Australia who are a part of the SHED movement. Uh, What do you want them to know for Men's Health Week? Well, firstly, to thank you. Uh, you've done a great job in difficult circumstances and some people will be in, you know, small apartments, they might be living alone uh, and, you know, that situation would be tough. Others who might be, you know, on a property with family and land, uh, that's, you know, that's a, a far easier environment. So everybody's in different environments. Firstly, uh, thank you. Secondly, please keep contact with each other. Um, you are each other's own best supports. Uh, and so keep communicating. Um, some of us have discovered the joys of Zoom for the first time. Um, many will know FaceTime or just picking up the phone if, you know, if, if that's not your thing to, to use one of those audiovisual ways. Just being in contact, calling the people that are isolated, reaching out if you're feeling isolated. And then as we do get back to the sheds and our community activities, uh, embrace the moment, but don't embrace each other uh, in a physical sense. Keep that social distancing. You know, in all the world, uh, even though economically it's been so hard, uh, both in economic and health terms, you would rather be Australia than virtually anybody else. And that's the success of the Australian people. And if we've formed a, a once-in-a-century partnership between government, people, uh, and the states... That's really something that we can reflect on and celebrate. And uh, we're getting our lives back. They won't be exactly the same, but they're coming back. Funny, you're not the first person to observe that. There is virtually nowhere in the world we would rather be right now. Not many people know this, Minister, but you've done a bit of metalworking and fruit picking in your time. Could you see yourself being a shedder one day? 
I could uh, definitely see myself, um, you know, at a later stage in life. Knocking out some rocking horses? Taking, <laughs> yeah, taking time to come down to the shed. The, uh, I spent uh, a year of my life as an 18-year-old on a kibbutz in Israel, mm. Mm. and uh, you know, I loved it. It was a really formative year, and uh, it gave me a sense of the generosity of the world. I saw the harshness of the conflict in Israel, at the same time, I saw real human examples of generosity in both directions. And I lived on a bike for three months in the middle of that year, just knocking on farm doors in riding around Europe. And every night for three months, um, you know, people would take me in. And, uh, you know, I just had this great sense of ultimately you know, an optimism about humanity. And that's never left me. And if anything, it's been reaffirmed during the course of, uh, of this crisis. You know, it's a pandemic that none of us uh, ever believed would necessarily happen on our watches. We always knew it was possible, so we were prepared. But the scope and the scale of it and the speed uh, has astonished us. But what's been more heartening still is the way people have responded. Australians have simply been magnificent. And to keep our culture and our sense of humour, I've got to say, FM radio has been a superstar in this. They're able to look at what's happening and give people a bit of humour and joy without the outrage or the self-righteousness of some. And there's this humour that comes with Australia and that's the sign of resilience. And that resilience is what's got us to where we are and that's resilience Resilience is what's going to get us out of this. And uh, we're on the road back. Yeah, well, at some point, you're not quite ready for it yet, but at some point, we'll get you to meet the Shed Wireless's uh, resident character, Rip Woodchip, and he can have a yarn with you. But uh, we, we might make sure everyone survives before we expose you to Rip Woodchip. Minister, thank you. Given how much is on your plate and the enormous demands on your time, we as a shedding movement really appreciate your availability, the fact that you have shown us the respect to give us your time today and that you see the value in what we do normally. Normally, shoulder to shoulder, but virtually shoulder to shoulder through the Shed Wireless. Thank you for your time today and good luck with all of the challenges that lie ahead. My absolute privilege. You take care. That is the Federal Minister for Health, Greg Hunt, on the Shed Wireless. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it with Rip Woodchip. G'day, Shadows, Rip Woodchip here. How are you all going this week? I've just been out for a walk with my dog Charlie this morning. Funny how we can't even shake hands with our mates, but Charlie must have sniffed about a dozen butts during our walk. Maybe the vaccine for this thing is somewhere in the ingredients of pal pedigree. Well, the question on everybody's lips is, when are we going to all be able to go back to the shed? Much like the rest of you, I'm chomping at the bit to get back at it, and hopefully sooner rather than later, or else I'll either be up for a divorce or my missus will be up for murder. I can't blame her, though. I even get on my own nerves sometimes. I do miss getting my hands dirty, but I can't say I haven't enjoyed the challenge of keeping in touch by some of the other means of communication. And the fact that everyone's making that extra effort has been pretty bloody inspiring too. I got a call from Bruce, the Shed Welfare Officer, again yesterday, just to see how I'm going, and to keep me in the loop with everything. He said all the fellas are doing well and keeping themselves sane and familiarising themselves with their family again. 
Most of the blokes have been keeping in touch anyway, and we've had a chat through the social media and the Facebook page, and phone calls, and we still get the newsletters now and again too. Another thing is, I feel like I've made a bunch of other mates online over the past month or so, and I've been enjoying learning about what else is happening out there in the bigger, wider shed world. Really starting to get some momentum going on the shed online now too, and the different topics and discussions popping up everywhere are really interesting. It's good to see that so many of us are not letting all this isolation stuff isolate us too much. And we're all embracing so much of this new stuff that's available to keep us all communicating. Let's face it, fellas, we're all getting a little bit older and there will come a day when we just can't physically get down to the shed or down to the shops or even to go visiting like we used to. I've seen it happen to plenty of our blokes down at our shed over the years. One day they're there and then they're just, well, they just disappear. We don't hear about them again until the inevitable happens, I suppose. But there's always some kind of company at your fingertips, whether you're just out and about in the caravan with the missus or laid up at home in bed for a bit. you just got to make the effort to give it all a go. There's going to be a lot of philosophising to come of all this, but for my money, I reckon the younger ones are going to become a lot more grateful for the things of old and the older ones are going to become a lot more respectful for the things of new. Anyway, fellas, I ought to get back to doing nothing again because I didn't finish it yesterday. All right, fellas, catch you next week. See ya. Staying strong. Staying sharp. And staying healthy. With The Shed Wireless. I was only thinking to myself the other day, could you imagine... How many excess calories have been consumed across the globe in the last few months? Think yourself, right? How many more have you had? And then multiply that by the number of days you've been at home, then by the 7 billion people in the world. That is assuming, of course, that everybody has access to excess food. But there's an old saying If energy in is more than energy out, then the difference can be found on the scale. So when you're stuck in your house with your fridge, the potential to eat and not move is huge, especially because so many of our favorite exercise options have been banned. So how do we tackle this problem, especially for what it means for our health? Well, AMSA's Men's Health Project Officer, Stuart Torrens, has been taking a close look at this, and he's with us once again. Hi, Stuart. How are you? Yes, I'm doing remarkably well. Actually, on the upswing, which is an interesting thing I've observed in myself. But setting that to one side for a moment, we've been chatting about the general mental well-being in the last few weeks. But mental well-being is closely attached to physical well-being, and physical well-being is closely attached to movement. And that's why we are talking about this subject today. You've hit the nail on the head. If you look through every organization, health organization's website, you will see at the top of the list two things, diet and exercise. Mm. Uh, And they're the things that will stave off um, all sorts of ailments, uh, diseases, uh, and stand us in good stead for um, any attack from the outside, i.e. from things like the coronavirus. You're going to be way, way better off if you're uh, healthy and exercised than you are if you're not, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. And it's a quantity of life and a quality of life challenge. So just making it personal for a moment, uh, you're in good nick. How have you gone about personally addressing this problem in the last little while? 
Well, it was funny, Aaron, because uh, your intro hit the nail on the head. I'm sitting far too close to the fridge. Uh, <laughs> that's what we need to be social distancing from, the fridge. <laughs> yeah, that's my next social distancing uh, exercise. <laughs> 1.5 metres. <laughs> I think I need to have about two blocks away, actually. So I have to walk to, walk to get there. Um, but in, in that regard, in the last, um, what, what is it? Six weeks. Mm. I've put on three kilos. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and you, so your intro was hit the nail on the head for me. And um, I have been trying to do as much exercise around the yard. I've been getting out and doing the gardening and what have you. But it's obviously nowhere near the amount of exercise that I did pre, um, you know, uh, COVID and uh, isolation. Yeah, I want to engage on that in a moment, but just Mm. before we move on to the being too close to the fridge phenomenon, I know my kids are eating five times what they did uh, prior to COVID, and I've taken to teasing them by saying, ah, you're just playing Australia's favourite game, am I hungry or am I just bored? And there there is that phenomenon as well where if you haven't got a lot going on and if you kind of feel nervous, food can be – a safe place or a bit of a false god, can't it? Well, they call it the comfort food. Yeah, quite. Uh, and it hits a lot of people with um, depression, anxiety, loneliness, um, depression, all them sort of things. You look for something to hold on to, and a lot of people turn to food, unfortunately. Um, and in this day and age, there's quite often not uh, the healthy options available. You know, if we if we grabbed an apple, uh, a handful of nuts every time we wanted to eat something um, or felt bored or whatever, we'd probably be better off. But unfortunately, what we tend to go for are those snack foods, the the sweet treats that are all around us. Always full of fat and either sugar or salt because that gives you that little momentary good hit before you don't like yourself again. Yeah. But I want to walk back to uh, to what you were talking about before, and that was how much harder it is to have incidental exercise. So for some blokes, it might be walking down to the shed. For others, it might be gardening. For others, it might be walking down to the shop to pick up the paper. The isolation by its very definition has meant a lot of that accidental exercise has gone away. It, it has, Aaron. But in saying that, what our focus uh, from the span of teams um, perspective has been this year is on diet and exercise. Mm. And it's doing the little extras, that little extra step, the little extra push. So when you do have to go and buy toilet paper, go to the supermarket, but don't park at the door, park Mm -hmm. at the back of the car park where there's 101 car parking spots. And that little bit of extra will do you the world of good. And that's our push this year is getting people to do that little bit extra. Like you were saying, the uh, uh, food in or energy in Mm. has got to have energy out to create that balance. Otherwise, it's going to hang around and uh, usually hangs around on the love handles. Part of what you're talking about there has been given a label and a name to help us understand it, and that is exercise snacking. And the point of it is, it's very hard to think about, oh, a big slab. How am I going to find time for 10,000 steps today? But if you exercise snack, mm. you can accidentally hit your 10,000 almost. Do you want to talk us through that concept? 
It, well, in that regard, I, I uh, used to talk to uh, people about diet and exercise when I, uh, I worked with Alzheimer's Australia in New South Wales, because mm. diet and exercise is, uh, in particular increases the blood circulation through the body and therefore is good for the brain and staving off dementia growth. So it's a matter of focusing on those uh, small bits of exercise that you can do you might not be physically able to run around the block or run a marathon. But if you do two or three more steps every time you do a, a, an activity, those little bite-sized chunks will help you in, in the long run. Put it this way, if you don't do them, you're going to suffer for it. They say the target is half an hour a day. That isn't a big number, even though many of us go, oh, gee, it's hard to exercise. Half an hour is, what is it, one forty-eighth of any given day. Having said that, that's half an hour throughout the whole day. Yeah, quite. So if, if, if you can break that down into little bite-sized chunks of five minutes here, five minutes there, uh, do a little bit of stretching, hold on to the back of a chair and, and do some squats, Whatever the exercise will be, I used to actually um, promote a type of exercise called kinesthetic exercise where you, where you don't even have to get off your butt. Go on. You can sit there and squeeze areas of your body. So let's say your stomach muscles. Mm -hmm. You clench your stomach muscles and whilst uh, continuing to breathe, you count to 10 and then you relax. You relax for five, then you tense the muscles again count to 10. This is exercising those muscles without actually having to uh, move. We can all clench the muscle groups throughout our body. Uh, clench your butt cheeks is, is one of the things I used to get the audience to do because they all used to giggle at it. Mm. Um, and then I would forget to tell them to relax at the end <laughs> and then finish my talk. <laughs> so every, everyone was walking around like Jean-Claude Van Damme by the end of it. <laughs> They had very strong butt cheeks <laughs> and a smile on their face <laughs> and a lot of questions for me. <laughs> well, uh, generally when we're having a chat here, we issue some sort of a challenge. We won't issue the challenge of everybody uh, clenching their butt cheeks until the next episode, although if you want to take <laughs> up that challenge, what you do on your own time is up to you, uh, ladies and gentlemen. However, do you have a little bit of a challenge, something proactive that we can do that tackles some of the issues that we've raised here okay so in in regards to stepping it up uh, stepping out be active we have exercise right uh, doing a, a podcast on uh, active at any age that podcast is coming out on the 20th of june by healthy mail great we'll tell you more about that on our website but in the interim anything that you do any sort of walking around the house take it a few more steps, add a little bit more. So if you're going to empty the dishwasher, for instance, instead of holding a pile of plates and taking that part, take each individual plate to the cupboard and that will give you that extra exercise backwards and forwards. If you're cooking a meal, go to the fridge for each and every item backwards and forwards. That will increase the amount of exercise that you do the, uh, during the day without having to go out and run around the box or run around a, a, a marathon. I, I watched a very funny video where a, a gentleman put soapy water on the floor 
and then pushed up against the place. And basically, he created his own treadmill. I saw that too. <laughs> but you could do that with a pair of socks yeah. on, a, on, a, on a vinyl floor. Uh, exactly the same sort of thing. Um, you don't have to create the mess. But that little bit more will stand you in good stead. And it is a slight mental shift because it is human nature to find the shortcut, to find the quickest, most efficient, in inverted commas, way of doing things. Mm. And what you're actually advising there is efficiency is about hardwiring a bit more movement in. And so it will take a slight shift, but you'll be surprised how quickly half an hour a day turns up. Mm. Uh, Thank you for the challenge, Stu. Thank you for your company this week. We will talk to you again very soon. That is AMSA's Men's Health Project Officer, Stuart Torrance. Thanks, Aaron. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis, you can call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 or Men's Line on 1300 99 78 99. That's 1300 99 78 99. If you would like to check out all of the national health lines, you can just Google up Beyond Blue. And if you are concerned about the health and safety of yourself, family or friends, you can find government advice on coronavirus and a helpline for coronavirus at 1-800-020-080. That's 1-800-020-080. Now on the Shed Wireless... Let's see who's working in the shed. To find out who is working in the shed, we're heading back to AMSA headquarters this week, where we find the man who crunches all the numbers. Mark Lilly has been an auditor at an international firm. He's worked as the business manager for a government environmental agency. He's a chartered accountant and registered tax agent with more than 35 years experience in the accounting profession. But these days, he is the finance manager at the Australian Men's Shed Association. And if you have had cause to have a financial inquiry at any point, you have very probably met Mark. Indeed, you probably have if you've been to one of the national conferences as well. Welcome to the Shed Wireless, Mark. Oh, thanks very much, Aaron. Thanks for the lovely introduction. It's really nice to catch up with you. Uh, We don't do it often enough, but I I have to be professional. I have to be hard hitting in this interview, Mark. I'm going straight for the jugular first up. Well, that wasn't a deal at all, Aaron. (laughs) I'm afraid afraid, uh, my journalistic instincts are strong. I need to know, how do you manage to keep your job when you are so much better at golf than the executive officer David Helmut. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's not easy. I try to give him a tip every now and then, but uh, he's actually he's actually better than he thinks. I think he gets down on himself, but he's a it's a pleasure to play with, and I think he gets a real thrill that he can outdrive me by at least thirty meters on every hole. So that that uh, keeps him going. <laughs> so is. That your style, short and straight, as opposed to the Helmers, uh, long and loose? Unfortunately, Aaron, it is. I'd like to be more flamboyant, and I'd love another 30 metres of my drives, but uh, it just doesn't seem to happen. Have you been a lifelong golfer? Been. Uh, Mum and Dad live near Pennant Hills Golf Course in Sydney, and uh, I was looking to, being a true accountant, I was looking to earn some money when I was 9 or 10 years old. But uh, Dad would only give us 20 cents pocket money, which is really nothing. It was more then than it is now, to be fair. But <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's, that's true, but it still didn't go that far. So we saw the golf course as a source of income initially and um, had a friend that used to go caddying there, hooked on with him, started caddying. So I've been associated with golf 
for a long time, since I was nine. I won't tell you how many years that is because it's too long to say. (laughs) That's interesting. How much do you think you picked up by osmosis just by spending that time watching other, I guess, predominantly men, was it? Having Having a swing and seeing what worked and what didn't. Do you think you picked up a lot of it just by observation? Oh, that's exactly right, Aaron. I, um, I've only really had, I wouldn't have had more than half a dozen lessons in my whole life. So I, I picked up the whole lot through osmosis and having the odd golf book and reading that. But even even now, all these years later, I'm, I'm still learning, which is the beauty of golf. It's a game. It's a lifelong game where you're always challenged and you're always learning. And uh, David, David Helmers would attest to that as well, I'm sure. It's interesting because there's a crossover with the shedding movement in that regard, because increasingly there are white-collar workers and ex-workers in the shed movement, and they haven't necessarily been steeped in a history of metalwork or welding or whatever the particular thing that's going on is. And observing people who are adept at something is a really important way to learn things, isn't it? Oh, it really is, and it's a way of... um getting along with people as well and, and most people are really encouraging and they, they help you if you need help but yeah it's a wonderful way of um, working and the, the golf club and the men's shed are, are fairly similar in that regard it's you you're part of a club you're part of a group of predominantly men mm. and you're doing something that you all love it's got the same foundation and uh it's it's the beauty of the men's shed as well that's the love of golf where does the love of numbers come from Oh, people said, um, I've always said all my life, I'd make a good accountant. And I, I always thought it was probably because I was a bit stingy. So <laughs> that's, uh, but I, it's, I, I do love numbers and I always loved numbers from really from primary school. It was my favourite thing to do at school, which is odd, odd as it may seem. But so I've been lucky that I've um, been able to make a career of it. And even to this day, I, I still really enjoy putting the financial statements together and lucky to deal with numbers. Does it bother you that people associate accountancy with boredom? Oh, I think it's very strange, Aaron. It's, um, people, it's funny that people should say that because I'm lucky that I can do that, mm. but I, I feel like they're missing out, because, which makes it easier for me because there's <laughs> less accountants because we have this perception. So I can um, hopefully then, well, I've been lucky enough to get jobs I've always liked and been good at because the competition's not that great. So mm far as I was concerned, like long live that perception. That's really interesting. What, why, well, first of all, why do you think that perception exists? Oh, I think the perception exists because when I was, um, when my daughter was at school, every holidays I'd take her into work and she'd sit with me for a day and uh, see what I'd do. And then when it came time for her to choose a career, I said, what would you like to do, Em? And she said, I don't care what I do as long as it's not accountancy. <laughs> she said, I can't. <laughs> I can't stand sitting in the office for so long. It's too confining. I've, I've got to get out and, and do things. So that was her whole motivation not to do accountancy. And I think, I know it's extraordinary, isn't it? So at least at least she chose a career which um, she's happy with and didn't choose the wrong career. <laughs> what did she go on to do out of interest? Well, she wanted a career totally opposite to accountancy. She wanted a career of movement and never sitting down. So she chose to be a physio, yeah. which uh, yeah, she really enjoys. And it is polar opposite to accountancy. If then that is the perception and if you say, well, what they don't know is good for you, what do you find the charm of it? Why 
have you chosen to spend well in excess of 35 years crunching numbers? Yeah, it's a long time, 35 years. The, um, if people that like puzzles, Aaron, if it's, I see accountancy as a really a, just doing a big puzzle. So if you like a jigsaw puzzle, it's really, it's the same principle. You really have a whole lot of numbers which are just floating around out there that belong to your business. And you need to put those numbers together and form a picture. Mm. And the pictures happen. So you do this once a month and yet the picture becomes the profit and loss account and the balance sheet. And um, it's, just, it's just solving a puzzle and putting things together. And it's a when you're doing that side of it, the financial statements, it's black and white. So you always get an answer. You always balance so there's no ifs or buts or maybes. It's um, a clear answer and something that can be solved every month. It's, it's a real pleasure to do. And we can debate whether or not it's sexy, but its importance is not debatable, particularly if you're at an organisation like AMSA, where there are public monies involved and governance issues and those sorts of things. It's incredibly important that you get your job right. Oh, it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important for AMSA and we're audited each year, so it's uh, certainly a check on what we do. But it's incredibly important for every every business, every level of government, every organisation. So you would have seen the Treasurer on TV last night presenting some of his numbers for the government. He does that on a regular basis. And then you have the people in the, the men's shed, that each, each shed has a Treasurer, and they, they do the, the same thing with the different different set of numbers, but trying to produce the same result, the same outcome, trying to balance the books. So we, we all do it. Um, and uh, yeah, just it's, the, it's really the um, heart of every organisation. It just has to be done. Why do you want to work for an organisation like AMTA when you could probably make a lot more coin, given your background, uh, working somewhere else? Oh, AMTA is a wonderful organisation. As you said, I've done a, a variety of things in the accounting world, but at my stage of life, it's really nice to do a, a community-based job so that we're actually helping the community rather than helping other people just to really save tax or make money for themselves. So to do something mm. that helps a community of men across Australia, it's just a, it's a wonderful, it's just a wonderful privilege. The thing that's, which surprised me a little bit was when I help the, the shedders might ring up once or twice a week with an accounting question or a tax question and uh, I help them with that. And they're, they're always the same. They're always so grateful and so appreciative of what you do. It's, it's really quite heartwarming. But in, in practice, you just don't seem to get that. People really take it more for granted. So it's, um, it's just lovely working for the shed and being a small cog in something that's made such a difference to people in Australia. If this isn't too probing, why does making a difference to the community matter to you? As I say, there are plenty of guys with your background that just keep adding noughts to their salary every year. Why does giving back matter to you? Is it part of a personal philosophy? Oh, it's just satisfying, Aaron. Like it's, it just makes you feel good. If you, if you do someone something to help somebody, it makes you feel good. So by helping other people, you're really helping yourself. That's how I see it. It's... It's a, it's a really heartwarming thing to do. This is actually a true story. When every, anybody ever asked me, who do you work for now? I say I work for the Australian Men's Shed Association. And every person virtually verbatim says, oh, that's such a wonderful organisation. 
Like that's isn't that amazing? You want to talk about privilege? That is a real privilege. I have a very similar experience, obviously, in this role, and it is one thing to carve out a life for yourself, you know, and put food on the table and that sort of thing. All those things really matter. But if you can manage to do a job where people actually think you're making the world a slightly better place or at least facilitating other people to make the world a slightly better place, then, yeah, I reckon that's winning life in many ways. Oh, it really is. And uh, I feel sorry for the accounts that work for the tax office because... I'm sure they don't, they don't get the same response. <laughs> no, I'm sure they don't. However, I bet they uh, tuck themselves in at night going, well, see that bridge that got built over there? That's because I did my job. Or see that over there? That's because I did my job. So we are all just cogs in the big wheel in, uh, in some way or another. So you're good at golf. You're good at cycling as well. If you were thrust into a shed tomorrow and uh, put in front of the lathe or some other challenge, how do you go with your hands, having been a man who's mostly wielded a pen in your life? Well, terrible, actually, Aaron, which I'm really, I'm, I'm really ashamed to say that because Dad was an engineer and we actually had a, a he had a workshop underneath our house in Beecroft and he had, he had a lathe and he had every tool you could possibly imagine. And I've got three brothers, and they're, they're all experts on the tools. They're, they're fantastic, and they have their own sheds and could really be builders if they wanted to. But um, none of those skills, none of those skills were passed on to me at all. So I'd probably end up losing my hands, I'd say, if I even had a go at it. So I, liked, I, I appreciate other people can do it, but it's a bit tricky for me. Yeah, fascinating. Really good to catch up with you. As I say, uh, we've known each other for a long time and uh, don't manage to chat as often. We're not in the same room even now because of uh, social isolation still being in place. But thank you for helping us to understand your role with AMSA. And we look forward to being in the same room. In fact, maybe even a shed where we'll probably be equally useless. <laughs> maybe <laughs> being in, a shed in the not too distant future. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. It's been a pleasure talking with you and I hope we do catch up soon. That is Mark Lilly, who is the finance manager for AMSA, the Australian Men's Shed Association. And each week on the Shed Wireless, we find out who's working in the shed. Yes, it might be somebody like Mark who's at HQ, or it might be somebody working in administration somewhere, or it can just be somebody who is making sure that the shed doors get open somewhere across Australia. So if you would like to talk to us about what's going on in your shed, it's as simple as dropping us an email. It is theshedwireless at menshed.net. That's theshedwireless at menshed.net. Make sure you put two S's in Men's Shed. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, who you are or who you want to nominate if you want to tip somebody else into it and uh, what work is happening in the shed that you're associated with. You're listening to The Shed Wireless. Time now to continue our journey through the history of the shedding movement. And we are joined by a legend of shedding in Australia. He is patron of the Australian Men's Shed Association, inaugural chair of the International Men's Shed Organization, the author of the Men's Shed Movement, the Company of Men. Barry Golding was awarded the Australian Men's Shed Association Ted Donnelly Award in 2013 for his outstanding contribution to the shed movement. And he has been taking us through the history of the shed movement along with Executive Officer of AMSA, David Helmers. 
over the last few episodes here on the Shed Wireless. Today, we're going to take a look at how what was a quite remarkable local phenomenon here in Australia managed to go global. Barry, at what point did you realise that the Shed movement had international potential? Okay, I was uh, during the during the mid two thousand early two thousands travelling regularly overseas, and I talked to groups overseas, in particularly in England, Ireland, and Scotland, as an academic about what was happening in Australia, and I was trying to enthuse people and get them to to to, to know about this stuff. Um, but it, it's it's one thing for an academic to say something that doesn't that doesn't uh, academics don't typically start bushfires they they're often shit boring and um, and I can be shit boring too I should acknowledge that um, I was actually travelling in Ireland um, and I got an email from some weird guy called Johnny Boy and. Um, he said, I hear you're in Ireland. Uh, can we catch up? And I, he said, and I emailed back and said, well, okay, Ireland's a big place. Where are you? He said, I'm in New Ross. I said, where is New Ross? And anyway, we ended up working out that he could drive from New Ross down south of Dublin and we would meet at the Dublin airport and he'd bring a few mates with him. And that three-hour conversation really turned out to be very powerful in terms of the growth of sheds in Ireland. And as you know, David, by 2009, John came across to the Hobart AMSA conference. Yes, that's right. We'd done a fair bit of groundwork in the background in the meantime, you and I and others. But I think it's important just to acknowledge there were two New Zealanders came across to the Manly conference And things had actually been ticking over there even before they came out here. And and the first very early um, bloke sheds had opened uh, at an old airport on the outskirts of Dunedin on the South Island, New Zealand in around 2000 and 2006. So 2006-07. And uh, so New Zealand was just starting to bubble uh, news, uh, by 2009, Irish sheds were starting to open and um, Age UK had started to try and roll out men's sheds as a sort of a top-down initiative, which which understandably and fortunately didn't work very well mm. because it just wasn't It was a spectacular right. failure. It was. Um, it was a spectacular failure, but... It kick-started the movement, and once it realigned itself, it's gone on from strength to strength, and I admire what they've done since. The 2009 Hobart Conference, I suppose, was be the next um, turning point, I suppose. It, it was a point where I think there was getting close to 300 men sheds around Australia by that stage. Um, and again, as you referred to the manly ones, we even got more... Uh, media coverage at the at the Hobart event, um, but I think it was quite significant you know, from the Shed's perspective and from Amps's perspective. Then, as that actually started to really morph and take shape into what we would call the modern era men's shed, um, you know, the next 
900 men's sheds across Australia really were moulded, I suppose, on that modelling that was very much set set in stone by 2009, Barry. Uh, Yes, I think it it really was important um, in that sense. It brought together people from all around Australia, and I think you'll recall there were people there from almost every state. Mm -hmm. And as as a consequence of that, states started organising their own events, both regionally and statewide. And Yes, well, we did, if you remember, we did the Muck and Boodham one just a few months after that. Oh, Who could forget that? I've got the slide in front of me as I'm speaking, uh, and you'll recall this tiny town in the middle of nowhere. And, of course, at the 2009 conference, that was where you formalised a couple of patrons, including myself mm-hmm. and including... Professor John McDonald from University of Western Sydney. And we, you and I and um, John McDonald, and I think Gary Green drove... From Perth? From Perth Airport to Muck and Boodin. Mm-hmm. And, and we were driving along country roads. I, I drove and you rode yeah. in the back. <laughs> yeah. And we could not believe. We were going down increasingly small roads. Mm-hmm. And we were looking on the map and the place we were heading for, Muck and Boodin, was barely on the map. And we just thought this was some sort of weird hoax. And when we got there, they'd put, and and what I'm looking at on the screen as I speak, is a picture of the um, Muck and Boodin shed with a marquee set up opposite. And this blue carpet set up across the train line. Yep in order to stop people tripping over when they're walking from the pub to the shed. And I think it's probably the only time in history where a train line has been shut for a, for a conference with a, with a blue carpet over a railway line. I remember the whole town got behind it. They, you know, we were all billeted out, if you remember. The, the amount of work that went into that event, because the whole idea was to hold a mini conference um, and take the key elements out of the um, Hobart conference and take it to the wheat belt in Western Australia. And yes, well, the council were exceptionally, you know, um, uh, helpful and helped coordinate, you know, and it's only a small council out there. I, I remember most of the people had, you know, several jobs. I think it was the mayor who worked behind the bar and flew the helicopter as well. Well, and there's a bit of a backstory to that conference. I was passing through Perth about a, a year before and I met Anne Brandis, who organised that mm-hmm. conference, and her father was involved in the, in the shed. And she knew I was in Perth and she said, what would I need to do to organise a conference? So I spent a couple of hours with her chatting and she just went ahead and did it. And she did it absolutely brilliantly. It was just, it was an incredible coup in terms of, and for me, what it what it did, it showed that the movement was decentered. By decentered, I mean, you could hold a conference anywhere, even in the middle of nowhere, and importantly, in the middle of nowhere, because this wasn't something that came out of the city. This was actually something came out of the countryside, came out of small towns, came out of suburbs and was a gift to the Australian community. 
Could I just remind you, and of course, um, you'll probably be, um, that was the first time you and I slept together, Dave. Oh, don't uh, remind me. Can, don't remind me. I'm still having <laughs> flashbacks. Um, I, I, look, I don't, I don't recall who snored the loudest, actually, Barry. <laughs> Oh, uh, just just to clarify for those listeners who are concerned, we were billeted in single beds, but that was the first time we slept together, David. And it was yes, very- <laughs> I think it's the only time I've had to share a room with you, Barry. <laughs> but Barry, so much of what you're describing there seems to me to be quintessentially Australian, that rural community environment, the idea of everybody putting their shoulder to the wheel. but those same ideas now resonate across Ireland, around the ring road of Iceland, various other places in the world as well. What is the essence of shedding that translates into any culture? I think it's about men taking taking charge of their lives and their communities and doing so through the shed, uh, not just for themselves, and, and not just for other men, but for the community. And that spirit of community building, David, you would have observed, is very strong. They have a strong tradition in Ireland of community development, which we don't have in Australia. We do community development yeah. organically, but they actually have professionals who are skilled and tasked at doing community development. And many of those sheds were got together through community development initiatives. And importantly, uh, the men's sheds in Ireland boomed in 2009 and and afterwards um, because there was a global financial crisis in 2008. And unlike in Australia, um, Ireland was just knocked for six by that. And there were a lot of younger men out of work. And as a result of that, the median age of shedders in in Ireland was at least 10 years younger than the median age in Australia. So on average, men were around 68. In, in Ireland, it was around 58. And so they became powerful, A, because they were needed, B, because there was a strong community development ethos, and C, because it's decentered. And as you would have observed, when you if you if you were to if you would get a map of Ireland and fire a shotgun at it, that's where the sheds are. They are not all in Dublin. They're not all in Belfast. They are bloody well everywhere, and they're everywhere because every little town has a need. And there's a lot of older folk, uh, including older men, in in rural communities in Ireland, as in Australia, as in Tasmania, as in Iceland. <laughs> who need somewhere to go and something to do and somebody to talk with. And that's why it's worked. And that's why it started beyond the metropolis in the first instance in most cases. And I think, too, one the one that has surprised me over the years, or a few have surprised me, I never thought that um, Denmark and Sweden and Iceland, some of those countries, would take on men's sheds. But once I... You know, being to Denmark and Sweden, yes, I could see how it fitted into their culture. But I think the surprise one of recent years, Barry, is the actual, you know, now we're starting to see the growth of men's sheds in, in North America. And, you know, the US Men's Shed Association have done a great job so far of Americanizing the whole men's shed idea. Um, but, yeah, for the, the US's uh, approach to 
community and, and social welfare, I thought it wouldn't take on. But the, the way it's looking at the moment, Barry, I think the, the next growth area, men's sheds, may be within North America. Yes, of course, as we speak, um, most of them, all the men's sheds in the world that I know of are in lockdown because of the COVID-19 epidemic. But beyond the academic, beyond the um, epidemic, whenever that is, and it'll be different in different parts of the world, I do anticipate that there'll be a lot of people. In fact, a lot more people will be out of work. Um, a lot of people in their sixties and in sixties and and men of all ages will will have lost their jobs as a result of the COVID nineteen epidemic. There'll be a long tail of unemployment. And there'll be a lot of older, unwell men, some of whom will never work again. Um, and I, I think we need to anticipate beyond all of this current um, epidemic, there'll be a growth in men's sheds and there'll be a greater need for men's sheds. And as you say, in places like the US, which has really been knocked for six in terms of its impact on communities, and um, there'll, there'll be a desperate need for, for sheds, even more so in terms of men's physical and mental health. Yes, and that um, you know, raises that the, the little project that we're currently working on together, Barry, along with John McDonald there, and writing a, a paper on where we, you know, sheds may evolve to in the mm -hmm. future, and you know, preparing ourselves for that, as you rightfully say, there will be a lot of unemployment so yeah we've managed to give we've managed to give you something to do in your retirement uh, besides riding your bike and put you back to academic studies that is where we will leave our journey through the history of the shedding movement now that it has gone global and in the fifth and final part of our series next episode of the shed wireless we are going to look at this moment in history this particular punctuation mark for the shedding movement and how well the movement is positioned to take on the challenges of a post-covid world that's on the next episode with Barry Golding and David Helmers of The Shed Wireless. This is The Shed Wireless. And it's just about time to pull the door closed on The Shed Wireless for another episode. And we're encouraging everybody to keep the door closed on the refrigerator as much as possible as well. Uh, hello to everybody who has us in their ears and is out walking, doing some exercise, snacking right now. Uh, the struggle is real, David. The struggle uh, is real. I've become very, I've got a very intimate relationship with my refrigerator at the moment and <laughs> it's starting to show around the waist a bit, eh? <laughs> we need to uh, put those X's on the floor like they've got at the supermarket that you can't get within <laughs> 1.5 meters of uh... maybe it maybe a padlock on it it's not just the food it's the um little tin cans that go with it as well oh my goodness me get back to work for for a man who doesn't do a lot of drinking i can tell you i have i have added to the superannuation of uh the local bottle shop uh look once we're all allowed back and everything goes back to normal it'll be time to sell those shares in the um brewing companies mate sales will plummet <laughs> 
<laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so coming up next episode on The Shed Wireless, we are going to bring you the final chapter of the Ted Donnelly story, the opening chapter where he started to, as the grandfather of the shedding movement, uh, he started to tell us an amazing story. We paused in the middle of it and it's taken us a while to get back to it, but you will hear that next episode of The Shed Wireless. And you will also take a virtual tour, and I mean a virtual tour, of the Parramatta Men's Shed. It's a really vibrant shed with a really interesting mix of men, and I think you'll get a lot out of touring the Parramatta Shed in the next episode as well. Thank you, David. Stay safe, and uh, good luck pulling everything together in coming weeks. Thank you, Aaron. You too, mate. Another busy week ahead of us. Thanks, Aaron. David Helmers is the Executive Officer of the Australian Men's Shed Association and your co-host here on the Shed Wireless. Why don't you open your email right now and drop us a line. Tell us where you're listening, what you're up to. Send a shout out to a friend somewhere else in the shedding movement. It's the Shed Wireless at mensshed.net. The Shed Wireless at mensshed.net. Thank you very much for tuning in. By the way, if you go to the website now where you used to have to stream from the website, it will now download the episode onto your mobile device. So we're trying to practice what we preach and make it easy for you to walk or move around the house or do the gardening while listening to the Shed Wireless. So if you head to the website, you'll be able to follow your nose and make that process a lot easier. Thank you to everybody who has subscribed the response has been overwhelming and to those who've given a review because that is really valuable as well we're delighted to have your support and we hope you will be back for the next episode of the shed wireless